Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Our question this time is, why does no one call the helpline or hotline? This is actually a fairly common question, but I think it begs another question, which is, is the lack of call volume a problem? A few years ago, I was asked to come speak to the executive committee of a large international organization. The company's best and brightest top brass were gathered around a conference table. You had uh, the CEO, the COO, head of HR, I believe general counsel was there, most of your senior management were gathered. I was ushered in to speak a little bit on code of conduct, but before I gave my presentation, I caught the tail end of the chief compliance officer's regular report to this group. And part of that report was the review of the quarterly data and results from their internal hotline. The chief compliance officer was dutifully presenting information about the number of calls made, a number of cases open, cases closed, a lot of data that many of you are going to be familiar with that you probably often present to your executives and to the board of directors. Part of this presentation was a comparison of the numbers, that uh, number of calls, the call volume that had come into the hotline over the previous quarter and comparing that year over year for the last couple of years. There was a definite trend to fewer numbers. Several of the executives gathered around the table started congratulating the CCO and also themselves, I suppose, by suggesting that the number of calls descending so over a period of time showed an improvement. There are fewer people calling the hotline or helpline, so that must mean that our system is working, that our program is strong. People aren't observing as much misconduct out there and don't feel the need to report what they're seeing. I'm sure that that perspective does not ring true to most of you that are listening to this that are chief compliance officers or are responsible for the compliance program at your organizations. That's not how you would typically see volume. I relate this story to show that we have an inherent bias in our minds that the number of calls, the volume of calls, somehow translates to the proselytizing effort that's been made, that ascending number of calls means that the program is working, that the, that the word is getting out. But I think it's dangerous to look at the volume of calls in and of itself as an indicator of relative strength or relative weakness of a program. So what's the right volume? I think really that's what a lot of people who ask the original question, why is no one calling my helpline or hotline, want to know. They want to know that the number is at the right level. They fear, typically, that the number is too low, but lower than what? I spoke to a compliance officer not too long ago who was uh, reviewing and benchmarking several aspects of her program. And one of the areas that she was reviewing was the volume and type of calls that were coming in on her organization's helpline. 
She was using data that was provided from the third-party hotline provider that uh, her organization worked with. And that is a common aspect of many providers these days that they offer some benchmarking data, either in a regular report or I think in some cases even on demand, if you would like to benchmark the results that you have found in your organization to those other organizations that are using the same service. I think what she found is probably typical to what many organizations find when they do this sort of exercise. When she compared her volume to the larger data set, it was more or less in line, but she also wanted to compare the results, particularly the volume of calls she was receiving on her hotline, to organizations in the same vertical, same industry that she was in. And what she found in that case is that it varied kind of wildly. And she couldn't really put her finger on why. There was no perfect match. And I think this really gets to the heart of the problem with benchmarking as far as volume goes. There is no perfect match. Benchmarking data is very, very helpful. I'm certainly an advocate of it. When I work with organizations on assessing their programs, benchmarking data can be invaluable. But you have to pick your battles, as with anything. And it can only take you so far. Benchmarking data on the volume of calls is not necessarily unhelpful, But is the volume of calls received really the metric that tells you the most about the success of your helpline? Volume can be helpful to test the relative success of a campaign or a messaging effort that you've undergone recently. When you see a spike in calls to a helpline or hotline after there's been a push, some sort of campaign or effort, that can be a signal that the message is getting out there. But that's very individual to your organization. That's not necessarily benchmarking. That's data gathering on an effort that you've conducted internally. I think that the problem with comparing call volume is more often than not, comparing to your peers might be apples to oranges rather than what you really want to get to and what we're really asking when we ask about why people aren't calling the hotline is how effective is our helpline or hotline. So what can we do to measure the effectiveness of this system? Years ago, when I was still a criminal defense attorney, I was investigating an issue at a plant, and I was interviewing a line manager. He had uh, dust on his hard hat. Uh, He had a pained expression on his face that he had to sit in a conference room with a young lawyer who was asking him all kinds of questions that uh, were... Not how he really wanted to spend his afternoon, shall we say. And I got around to asking him about the methods within that organization to report, including a hotline that they had at the time. He narrowed his gaze and he said something along the lines of, when the wrong move can mean an upset or shutdown at best and an injury or death at worst, ain't a lot of time for phone calls, son. That exchange points out a real cultural situation, you might say. (laughs) that was existing at that organization at that time and it exists at other organizations. But it's the sort of thing that you wouldn't see in data. You wouldn't see it in the number of calls that were coming into the hotline. I don't remember offhand, but I think that there was just a handful of calls that came into the hotline of that particular organization over that period of time that we were investigating. And certainly nothing came into the hotline that had to do with the issue that we were looking at. There are ways to measure and make a determination about the effectiveness of your helpline or hotline, even when you have perhaps some cultural barriers. The way to do that 
the way to measure awareness, acceptance, and ultimately the success of your hotline is to ask. There are different ways to do that, of course. You can conduct a lot of interviews, which is probably resource-intensive and prohibitive to do for most of you. You can do things such as focus groups or other ways to directly reach out to individuals. But you can also gather a sample and conduct a survey. You may already do this, and you may already do this on resources regarding your program already. But it is not uncommon for culture surveys in organizations these days to have a critical mass of questions around reporting mechanisms and other resources that are available. Part of that larger culture survey or a standalone sample, if you don't have that, you can ask people if they know about the hotline. Have they even heard of it? Do they know how to use it? Are they comfortable using it? And you can ask them if they have used it when they spotted misconduct in the past. And if they spotted misconduct and didn't report it and didn't use the hotline, then you can ask them why. What were the reasons? There are lots of questions you could ask. You probably don't have the space in a survey, particularly if it's a broader culture survey or HR survey, to ask too many. But you can at least get the basics out there so that you can have an understanding about awareness. And that, coupled with the volume of calls that you happen to be getting on the hotline or helpline, I think is much more valuable than comparing your base number to a base number from another organization or to your historical average. Again, spikes and drops in in volume, particularly if they're dramatic, can perhaps point to an issue or several issues that might be going on. So trends are important. But overall volume, whether you have 50 calls or 60 calls or 120 calls, there's no perfect equation out there that I've seen that can take the number of calls divided by the total number of employees that are covered by the hotline or helpline and give you any kind of comfort as to whether your hotline or helpline is effective. The only way, the best way that I've seen for evaluating the effectiveness of your hotline or helpline is to ask the questions. If you have a question you want answered on the podcast, be sure to submit it on compliancebeat.com. Now here's the upshot. The upshot this week is if the hotline isn't ringing, that doesn't necessarily mean the organization is doing fine. It could also mean that no one knows about the hotline or they're scared to report or they just feel it won't matter. Determining hotline effectiveness can be a matter of reviewing data, both internal and external, and also using surveys about resources to find out the opinion of the people that you're trying to reach. Today, we have three questions with Roy Snell. Roy is the Chief Executive Officer of the Healthcare Compliance Association and the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics. A co-founder and driving force behind both organizations, Roy has been a leader in the development of the compliance and ethics profession, overseeing compliance and ethics books, manuals, videos, conferences, and other resources for many years. He also helped develop professional certification in the compliance field, and has been honored for his work by Ethisphere and other organizations. He's a prolific writer for many publications and has served as a source for many national and international publications, such as the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and the Financial Times. A former Mayo Clinic administrator, a former consultant, a former compliance officer, he is a regular speaker on important compliance and ethics issues, evangelizing for the profession far and wide, and not afraid to take a stand when needed. Welcome, Roy. Thank you, Eric. I'm uh, looking forward to this. Can you talk a little bit about your career journey? How did you end up as the CEO of HCCA and SCCE? 
as you mentioned, uh, I spent about 10 years at uh, the Mayo Clinic in administrative type roles, business roles, and my main mentor, uh, a guy named Mark Detman, left Mayo, went to be the CEO of the University of Wisconsin Medical Foundation, and I followed him there, and we were walking down the hall one day, and he was reading a corporate integrity agreement from University of Pennsylvania, I believe, in about 95 or 6, and he uh, says, uh, you know, it says here that they have to, as a part of their corporate integrity agreement, hire a compliance officer. He said, maybe we ought to do that before they force us to. (laughs) And he just looked at me and he says, maybe you ought to do it. And I, (laughs) not knowing it, yeah, like a lot of us got in this way, not knowing a, a thing about it, I said, sure. And uh, luckily, interestingly enough, given your background, I got handed uh, a copy of the U.S. Sentencing Commission guidelines for compliance programs by one of my employees. She had no idea how helpful that was to me. Another employee gave me a business card of a woman who was a compliance officer, I believe, down in New Mexico. I called her. We had such a wonderful conversation about a job we both had that didn't really know what we were doing or didn't know other people that were doing it. I suggested we do a meeting with as many compliance officers as we could find in Minneapolis. We invited 30, 60 showed up. At the end of the day, it was such a great experience for everybody of networking and education. We had a few speakers. I suggested we start a group. A guy came up to me and said he wanted to be involved. I I happened to notice somebody in the audience that I thought really got it and asked her to help. And 20 years ago, we started the Healthcare Compliance Association. And about four, three, four or five years into it, our board decided we needed a CEO. They asked me to do it. I first started doing that 15 years ago. And about 10 years ago, we started SCCE. And about five years ago, we started some work internationally, and it's been a wild ride, big fun, and I've really been very fortunate. And if you could go back in time to 1996 and, and talk to your younger self before you had taken on both you know, a role in compliance, but also ultimately as CEO of HCCA and SCCE, what would the one thing be that you would tell your younger self? I got a couple of one, one's a little strange. I actually did this already once, and it affected me in the compliance world. When I first started out of college, I worked in the personal computer industry back in like 84 or 5. Um, actually, actually, I may have been in 1980, even before IBM was officially in the personal computer business. And I wandered off into administrative roles from the IT department at Mayo, and about 10 years later, smacked my forehead and said, my gosh, if you'd have stayed in that industry, which I knew was going to be huge, I would have had a lot more opportunity just simply because there were fewer people in the profession. And mm-hmm. I thought if I, and I told, I told, uh, <laughs> I put a mental note to my future older self that if I ever run into this opportunity of being in an explosive industry again, I'm not going to wander off. And I said, thought, well, what are the odds, you know? Of, of, <laughs> well, then, I, as I told in a previous story, I got asked to be the compliance officer at the meeting in Minneapolis, the very first one. 
where people flew across the country to for a one-day meeting without any knowledge of who we were or what we were doing. I thought, this is going to be huge. But plus, the, the, the solution made so much sense, the compliance program, to many of the problems that we were having. And I said, this is going to be huge. I'm not going to wander off. Well, not only did I not wander off, I stumbled into a really great opportunity and a way to be in the middle of it all or whatever. The other thing that I would tell myself, and I've been telling myself actually forever, is just to be more patient. I'm a really impatient individual, and I'm I'm sure it it helps a lot in the passion and the, and the getting things done, but I probably could have gotten a lot of what I've gotten done a, a little bit more patiently. I really don't have uh, too many of these sorts of things where I look back and kind of regret uh, stuff, uh, in part because I've been uh, very, very uh, lucky and stumbled into some good opportunities. And and so I tell myself on a daily basis, I wish I would do things better, differently, slower, faster, more patiently, or whatever. But... Uh, I don't tend to have uh, too many regrets, uh, but uh, those are a couple of things I would uh, do differently. And lastly, if you could peer into your compliance and ethics crystal ball, what are one or two trends that you think will be important over the next few years? These are some random ideas. Uh, One is I think IT compliance is going to be included in the compliance officer's role. I think for the most part up until now, and frankly, the majority of people do not have IT compliance. Up until now, it's been considered separate and the IT folks know security and they know these sorts of things and they're going to get it. But like any other department, they don't have a process like a compliance program to prevent, find, and fix things. Technically, they get it, but but they need a little better a process for preventing, finding, and fixing issues. When I first started in this field, I 20 years ago, I, I did a search on the internet on the word compliance, and it was all IT. The IT folks have used the word compliance quite a bit. I thought it was going to be a big part of our profession. I thought we would have members of our organization from IT, but IT doesn't see their job as a compliance officer, and they don't really focus on the compliance program process, but they have a lot of rules and things that they want to follow. As it is often the case, there's a failure. And in IT, there can be some pretty major privacy or security failures, legal problems. And the leadership will look around and say, well, where the heck were you, Mr. or Mrs. Compliance Officer? <laughs> and it's, well, you look at my job description. It doesn't say IT. Well, it is now. And go prevent, find, and fix problems over there. And one of the confirmations of this has been a long time, 20 years, waiting for IT to come around, really. But is uh, Target had a big credit card issue, I believe it was. They announced two new positions, a new chief information officer, a new chief compliance officer, in the very same press release. And I thought it was significant. Nobody else noticed it. But why would you post those two together? right after the major failure with the implication that it's part of the fix. 
Mm-hmm. And I think they realize that compliance can play a big role in IT areas. I also think that there's going to be more and more independence for the compliance officer, and this is going to be driven by the fact that, and this has already happened in healthcare just because the, the Health and Human Services IG's office drove investigations sooner, faster, harder, and got to this conclusion sooner. But it, as the SEC, DOJ, AGs, all sorts of investigatory folks go in and find problems, they're going to naturally ask, why wasn't this fixed? Now that there's compliance officers, they're going to ask, why didn't you know about this problem? And well, I kind of did. And why didn't you fix it? Well, I tried. And what got in your way? And the answer is going to be some form of a conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. And the more like like auditors, the audit world had a, a bit of a conflict of interest about 20 years ago. A- Anderson Consult or Anderson Audit Firm had a, a big issue and was related, so they wrote Sarbanes Oxley. And part of that is to give auditors their independence back. They can't report to they shouldn't report to the CFO because that's the person they're auditing. So as more and more settlements occur where the investigatory agency or agent sees that this thing was known, it was known for a while, it was brought up and ignored, they're going to figure out why it was ignored, and they're going to make a part of, as they already have a few times, is a corporate integrity agreement will include independence of the compliance officer. I think the compliance officer is going to, the department is going to grow. As you add in more and more risk areas like IT, I think you'll see more and more people either that are already in compliance-like jobs moving into the compliance department so it can work as a team or more and more risk areas being added. I think compliance is going to grow internationally. Uh, We have an academy in Brazil this week. We're supposed to limit it to 75. The faculty really get mad when we put too many people in there. I think we've got 82. We've done some stuff in about a half a dozen other countries, and it looks like uh, that is uh, happening. And then one last one is I think uh, compliance officers are going to be asked to be on boards, not the internal compliance officer that will come and report But I'm saying much like uh, boards have asked for financial people to be on their board and help work with the CFO and communicate with the board, the CFO's concerns and needs and watch over the company's financials, I think you're going to see more and more compliance officers being appointed to boards uh, to uh, act as that additional board member, maybe independent board member that will help that board understand their role and help that board communicate with the compliance officers, know what questions to ask them, help the compliance officer get their point across to the board. I think it's going to be a real asset, and it's just a matter of time before people figure it out. It's already happening to some degree, but I think it'll be very commonplace 15, 10, 15 years from now. Well, Roy, I can't thank you enough for your insights on on that and other things that we might see in the hopefully not too distant future. And thanks for answering the three questions. I am. It's been a real pleasure, Eric. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.